0: Cyrus.
1: Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the plus one podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been listening to the show and sharing it with your friends. Uh, you may have noticed that we've been on a bit of a break. But don't worry, we're not going away uh, We came back for this episode It's a very special episode uh, to me Because I have my very good friend Otis McDonald um, Otherwise known as Joe Bagale, On the show today He uh, produced my newest album Which just came out On February 4th uh, Really excited to have him on the show He's an incredible artist, a multi-instrumentalist, a producer, and uh, lended his talents to help me make my record, but also is putting out a lot of music himself under the name Otis McDonald. I want to thank everybody that's been supporting me and the new music that i've been putting out i've been putting out some singles and now finally the album is here it's called always you can find it on all of the streaming platforms you can also find vinyl um, at my website eric and we're going on tour we're leaving in february Uh, we're playing colorado the 18th and 19th denver on the 19th and cervantes we've got a big west coast tour Um, happening right from there. We play L.A. on March 4th. um, And then we have our big tour on the East Coast starting May 8th, I believe, uh, in New Orleans at Jazz Fest. Could be the 7th, but I think it's the 8th. And then uh, we work our way up the East Coast. We end up in Brooklyn, New York and Portland, Maine and all of my favorite spots. So again, go to ericrasland.com and uh, check out the tour dates there. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into this interview. He's one of my favorite musicians and just people in general. Uh, So let's get into it. But first, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's an amazing producer, he's an engineer. Uh, He plays guitar, bass, keys, drums. I'm so fortunate who have worked with him on my new album and we're going to be on tour together a good portion of this year without further ado I'd like to welcome today's plus one Joe Bagale aka Otis McDonald So it came out today we, It's out baby We did it we did it <laughs> It's been a long time coming and uh you know you and I have spent a lot of time looking at each other on screens in the last uh couple of years making this record, and um, man i'm just I'm stoked to have you on the show finally, we talked about it forever, but I think the timing actually is perfect yeah, um, I think so too man we are are celebrating the release uh, of an album that we made together top to bottom um, and uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, talk a little bit about how we linked up the process of making the record, and then I want to get into Otis McDonald, how Joe McHale became <laughs> Otis McDonald. Uh, you're a little bit about your process sure. um, as a musician and as a producer. But um, just because it's at the top of my mind and the album came out today, um, I kind of want to hear your version because I've been telling my version a hundred times over the last cause a month or two doing interviews for the album. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but sure. I, now I want to hear your version a little bit of like, the initial link up and how we started making music. Right on, man.
2: Well, uh, well, um, you know, so I, I have been a fan of you and, and your soul live brothers um, since I was in high school. And so I, I, you know, obviously you were already on my, my radar (laughs) Um, for people that not only I looked up to, but cats that, you know, I was hoping to work with one day, and, um, really it all started the, the day before new year's Eve in 2019, uh, Will Blades shout out to Will Blades Will from the Blades. assembly. Yep. Uh, Will uh, brought over Adam Deitch, another musician who I had looked up to, uh, so much since I was in college, you know, for his work with John Schofield and obviously lettuce and, uh, average white band, et cetera. Um, and he brought Deitch over here uh, because he wanted to show Deitch the studio where Herbie had made, you know, all these classic funk records that we all grew up loving. And, uh, and and it went exactly how I was hoping it would go. It was, you know, we, we'd sit and talk about the studio and then Deitch was like, hey man, you know, can I hear what you do? And so I started playing him some of my tracks um, and he just kind of bugged out. And I think he like immediately texted you he was like yo you need to link up with air krasno and i was like Fuck yeah, yeah i would love to you know and, and then i woke up the next morning after we like rocked out in the studio till five in the morning and i noticed you had started following me on instagram like immediately per right, per, right. per deitz's recommendation yeah and then uh you know I, it, those are like awkward moments because i just don't I don't really I don't want to fan out too much, you know, but so I just kind of like played it cool and waited, I think, until like the end of January 2020. And then I just like sent you a message Was like, hey, man, thank you for following yeah. me. And and then we we started messaging each other back and forth, like right away, just to, you know, just sharing our music with each other. You shared yeah. your latest album because you had just put out your your the newest telescope. record. Yeah, telescope, the telescope record. Yep. And I had just put out my album People Music uh, and we both kind of, you know, we're, we're suffering from what was about to come, which was the pandemic. <laughs> right. And and our albums really didn't get heard. And and I think we had made tentative plans to just link up, because I think you were going to be out here with O'Teal playing down the street at the Warfield. And, uh, and, of course, that didn't happen. But when lockdown started... I started just putting up little snippets of these tracks I was getting ready to release, and you responded uh, in a in a direct message to me about one of the tracks. We we're like, "Yo, what's up with that one? You know, can I write yeah. to it or something?" And then it just got us talking to each other, and um, and then eventually, me and my my track tribe crew, we we started working on this project called Song Aid. Right, um, and Song Aid for the listeners out there is um, it was a it was a charitable uh, streaming. Uh, playlist basically that, that had all these wonderful artists that donated a track to the cause and all the streams, um, that, you know, all the money that was accumulated for the streams would go to, uh, this company, why hunger, this charity out in the East coast, uh, that was helping out, you know, very strongly during the pandemic, both why hunger and, um, feeding America. And so I, I asked you if you wanted to do a track and, um, and you said, yeah, do you want to do it with me? And, uh, and I guess you, you were really digging, uh, Bob Dylan's man in me at that time, because it was resonating with you because you had just found out your wife was pregnant Yep. and, uh, and you were anticipating, you know, the real job that was coming, which is uh, yeah. <laughs> becoming oh, yeah. a father. Yeah. And, uh, and I love that song and I was like, hell yeah, man. And, um, and so I, I remember I, I just said, you know, why don't you just put together like a demo of your vocals and guitar to a click track and just send it to me and I'll just try to cook something up. And uh, and you sent it to me, I don't know, within like an hour. You just like ran out to your studio, came up with a quick arrangement. And I I just took the exact arrangement, the demo that you played, and I brought it into Pro Tools. And, um, I just started on the drums and it took me a while because, you know, I wasn't r- really trying to cut it up into loops or anything. I was just trying to play a full performance along with you, probably worked on those drums for like an hour or two or something. So I <laughs> I, la- I laid down the drums and then it was feeling pretty good. And then I quickly laid down the bass and, uh, and I waited actually, I think I waited like a week to send it to you because I, I needed to like let it simmer and see if I, it felt good to me. And then, so I, I didn't listen to it again for a week. And then when I listened to it, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. It's loose and it's funky and it feels real. And I sent it back. And I think within like five minutes you texted me, you were like, Yo.
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to interject here because I sent that to you thinking like, okay, this is like such a demo. You know what I mean? Like my vocal mm-hmm. and guitar were so simple and when you sent me that back, I was completely mind blown, you know, like that you oh, took man. that because uh, I wasn't sure if like, you know, you'd put a drum, like we would recreate it. But you actually used what I sent you and then built yeah. around that. Mm-hmm. And um, I had never really worked that way. I'd had people send me vocals and I'd worked around those, but I'd never been on the, the front end of that. Yeah. And uh, I was so, so into it. And I instantly started adding, you know, guitars and lead and stuff to other, other backgrounds. And then you added backgrounds and all that different stuff. And um, I just remember thinking instantly, like, this should be an album. Like, this this isn't just a yeah. song. Like, And I, I think I probably sent you... And it got me just demoing, you know, quote unquote, a bunch of the other songs that I had. And then... Uh, eventually writing, you know, writing. So this is all, uh, just to fill people in, you know, this is like right when lockdown happened, basically.
2: Right at the beginning. In the very
1: beginning. And uh, I was in a new house, in a new studio. So I was also like all up in your ear about, engineering stuff, Ableton sure, yeah. stuff. You were all into that Bink Looper thing and I yeah. made you FaceTime me for like three hours one day. <laughs> that was the
2: first time we met it was, yeah, on FaceTime.
1: It was on yeah, FaceTime. That's and um so we and 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 we so we continued to work all like via satellite. But the thing was that when when I listened back to Man and Me, I was like, okay, we created this you know, via satellite, you know, quote unquote, but it really mm-hmm. felt live and it had yeah, that's a feel, right. you know what I mean? And it felt like a band. So, yeah. So let me interject actually yeah, yeah.
2: So th- that, it, you know, we finished the track and it came out and you were so stoked with the process and, and the final outcome of it. And I, you know, I think within a week you were like, yo man, I, you know, I want to make a whole album with you that way. And I was yeah. just like, touched that 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 you you felt that good about it and that you wanted to do a whole record that way and 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 back to your point about you sending a demo and not really thinking that that was where the track was gonna you know it was gonna turn into something from that that was the process for the whole record you would send me a demo sometimes you would have bass on it sometimes there'd be like a drum machine or something like that yeah but the main thing is you had these demo vocals on there and and I found myself, what I would do is I would bring it into Ableton and I would, I would mute everything except your voice. Right, uh, and right. sometimes I would leave a guitar and sometimes I wouldn't, but sometimes yeah. I'd like, I'd learn the arrangement. I'd just play to your, your singing. Yeah. And, and, and it was, it was, it kind of dawned on me that it was like, well, that, that is what it's about. Right. I mean, that, that is the whole process that I, that I've tried to figure out in terms of being a one man band is how to how can you you know interact with another musician when you're not with that musician in the room and so like the drum parts and, or the bass parts or the keyboard parts I mean but specifically the drums were just shaped around your performance yeah. and i'd say 90% of the vocals on the record was your quote unquote, demo vocal. Right. And and you were just like, yeah, I'm going to redo that. And then I was like, yeah, let me just like, you know, let me work with what we got here. Like keep adding guitars and shit. And then I would just mix it and send it back. And you're like, shit. All right. I guess it's done. I'm like, hell yeah. Like Silence, I think, was the second song we worked on. Yeah. And that came together so fast. And, uh, and I remember you sending that, that demo to me and I was just like, it had like kind of a straighter drum groove to it, yeah, but I yeah. was like, oh no, we could, we could make this funky, like D'Angelo meets like Bill Withers or something right. like that, yep, you know? Yep. And, and, uh, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, man and me obviously was, was really exciting when we did it, but I think, I feel like when silence, when we did silence and and it only took us like I uh, maybe a week or something like that yeah, yeah. to do that track and you, uh. You I remember you you fucking calling me after hearing the mix and you were like bugging out and I was just thrilled. I was hanging out with my homie Chris McGee. Shout out to Chris, who's a big fan of Soul Live and we used to go see you together and and he was like freaking out. He was like, Dude, you're fucking making a record with Eric Crass and I'm like, Hell yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> you know? I mean, shit, that song I, you're right. That was the song where I was like, Okay, this is definitely an album. Um yeah. and that's when I started digging up a few of the older tracks, including so cold. Um, and where I belong was something I'd done kind of recently. That one was like about the move to, or like, that was kind of like when I was moving out of New York and I was like yearning for like nature, you know? And, uh, and then a lot of the other ones I wrote during the pandemic, um, related to, you know, starting a family, being in a new place, you know, yeah, getting married, and that so that uh, that's another thing that was a huge part of the experience making this record with you is that you had a, a, I guess Brent was like a one at that time. Yeah, he was one, and yeah. I had you know a son on the way. So mm-hmm. beyond just like becoming musical homies, there was like all these other things in our lives that were parallel and we would like so when we'd get on the phone to work on music like we would take three hours to get to working on the music because we'd be talking <laughs> about everything else <laughs> yeah, yeah
2: we'd be getting to know each other we had so many similarities like both coming from the east coast yeah both coming from uh musical families yeah uh, you yep. know our families that appreciate music uh we both had older brothers or you have an older brother yep, i have yep. two older brothers and and uh and then, yeah, we, and then I, I knew about the school that you went to because I had uh, friends in common that went to Hampshire College. And yeah, yeah. So it was, um yeah, and then we both loved John Schofield. So, you yeah, know, we, yeah. I think, oh, I think amongst we would... Amongst
1: ma- a million other things. yeah I mean, that was <laughs> yeah. the cool thing is that we both, like, came up on, like, hip hop, but also the Beatles, but also yep. John Schofield. Yeah. You know, and, and having all of those references, it was so easy to work together because I'd any reference I pulled out, you knew exactly what I was talking about, or already were doing it you know, while yeah. I was saying it. You were like, "I was just pulling that up," you know. Yeah. I so know. <laughs> there was uh, there was such an ease uh, to the flow, and then like halfway through the process, we started using the pedal or pedal, I guess is the correct uh, yeah pronunciation, yeah, so. and it's basically a, a technology that allows us to. Listen high quality in each other's studios while looking at each other. So like while he'd be like creating the drums, I could listen along, and then I could mute him and then add guitars to the loop I had, and then we could actually build music somewhat simultaneously at the same time and work together. And we found this this workflow that was like totally unconventional in, or I, or should I say it was unconventional in 2019, but like today um, is something else. But what I loved about that was you had the comfort of your studio and your things. And I, you know, was in my sweatpants and my flip flops, you know, with my, (laughs) with my guitars and my pedals right there. So I could do, you know, we were both in a very comfortable atmosphere yeah, um, to work. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that it replaces being in the same room as one another, but we kind of no. found this thing that was that was unique. Uh,
2: yeah, it was as close as it could get. You know, yeah. the way I always describe uh, pedal, I've actually never said it like that out loud. That's yeah. pretty funny. But yeah. now I'm realizing I'm like, oh, there's two meanings here. It's yeah. all. And yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, the way I always describe it to folks is, it's it's like Zoom on steroids. You know, because it yeah. like. It's got the video conferencing part of it, but it prioritizes audio and where like when we're on things like Zoom or Google chat or whatever, it's like we if we talk at the same time, we'll cancel each other out. Right. Because it's like compression. But yeah. this thing, this thing doesn't do that. So it literally kind of like felt like we are in the room together other than the ability to like play at the same time together. Right. Um, but I mean, it couldn't get any closer than that. Like you were saying, with like muting while you're coming up with a part and I'm coming up with a part and then we unmute and we're like, all right, I got this. Oh, I got this. You were like, the bass part's in the pedal right now and I'd just fucking drag it over. I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah, we
1: can send audio through it. In a certain way, it made certain things quicker because while you were like working out a part, you know, you could be like, mute me, you know? And then I would like go, I would start working out my part and then I could could hear, that I could like reference what you were doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, we both could be working on like honing individual parts at the same time.
2: That's right. I mean, I w- I would argue that it is actually quicker than being yeah. in the same studio together yeah. because because we could do that, you right. know, and uh right. it's it's not for everybody. I mean, you have to be able to engineer yourself, which we both do, and so it just it just worked out that right. way. That you know.
1: was a thing, is that you and I are both engineers, producers, so yeah. and musicians, which was like, you know, which was the whole thing, which is why we talk and nerd out for five hours before getting to anything. So it, it was helpful that we had a fast workflow because we would talk shit for three hours oh, yeah. in the beginning.
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember, I mean, we, we cooked up like, I think three songs before we ever met each other in person. Yeah. And, when, yeah. and, when you, and I remember that first night you were here, I mean, we were probably drinking some whiskey or something, but we were showing each other so much music. Like yeah, I mean, yeah. we recorded like probably, you know, 20%. And then the other yeah. 80% was like, yo, have you hurt this artist? Have you hurt this artist? So yeah, we were just yeah. like bugging out and and just becoming friends, really, you know. And yeah. It was so I remember I picked you up from the airport and you got in the car and you were like this is kind of weird,
1: huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know we have already logged like, like, yeah, like is... seven thousand hours on Facebook, on Zoom, or whatever. <laughs> um, I know, but I, uh, uh, I want to also uh, address the fact that um, you know Otis's uh, home base is is in Studio D at Hyde Street Studios, um, and uh, originally the the name of the studio was Wally Hyder, mm-hmm. and that room. Or the studio as a whole um, yeah. gave birth to so many classic records. It might yeah. be the most iconic studio in the Bay Area. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, American Beauty, The Grateful Dead elements were recorded there. And I don't know if it was the whole record. Yeah, uh, the whole record The whole record was, record was there. Garcia yep. solo record. That was done all in my room. In, yeah. in, in Joe's room. Um, a lot of like the CSNY crew, that whole era of Crosby and and Garcia was in yep. that room. Um, yep. But then let's jump to Herbie Hancock and and Headhunters and Thrust and that era of Herbie. So we're talking to like two of the cornerstones of like my musical existence were born in that room. So when I, I got there and kind of started understanding that history and like absorbing the vibes. Yeah, uh, it was that was heavy.
2: I know, man. It's still heavy. I come in here every day, and I feel like it's like my job to like, you know, honor all the shit that's happened in these sacred halls. You know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a, a big reason I moved to the Bay. I've been here 19 years now, and so yeah. I was nine. I I was 19 when I came here, and I I I was lucky enough that my oldest brother was living here at the time, so I had a family connection. But I was really interested in the Bay because that. That era of funk, um, meaning Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters, and then, uh, or I shouldn't say necessarily that era, but that like geographical location, like the Bay Area funk scene. Not a lot. I don't know if a lot of people know that Herbie's those records were all done in the Bay, and it was all Bay Area musicians that were on those records. Um, but that also led me to learning about Sly and the Family Stone. So I heard Herbie before I heard Sly. And I think Herbie even references Sly in the liner notes for Thrust, talking about that Bay Area Funk sound when he's talking about yeah. actual proof. Right. And and then I remember my oldest brother Adrian hipping me to Tower of Power. And then I I started hearing this like similarity, even though all those drummers on those records play differently, but they all have this like loose what they call like linear approach. And, and and it's like, it's funky enough to make you dance. But then when you like, as a musician, just kind of analyze what's going on, it's, they're not really always hitting backbeats. They're like almost never hitting backbeats. And it's like, how does this make me dance this way? You know? So I was so drawn to that because I was like, that shit is all coming from the Bay area. Like I need to understand this music. And, and so I was obsessed with it when I came out here and then fast forward, you know, 15 years later or 16 years later and now I, you know I took over the lease for for the studio in the room where all that shit was made well not the sly Amazing. stuff but even T.O.P I don't you know What Is Hip was done here like that whole second record the uh, self-titled Tower Power album was done in this in this building and some of it done in this room Soul Vaccination and
1: what? And Soul and... Vaccination was done in there? Yeah dude Oh my <laughs> god I didn't know that that's one yeah, of my man. favorite tracks of all time Soul
0: Vaccination poke Pokebox. Ah, when you get the notion, towers got the potion. You're my beginner. Set the sound in motion.
2: And then I started when i when I moved to the bay, I started learning about other Bay Area funk groups like Cold Blood, which had it you yep. know they didn't they never hit it as big as the other ones, but had that similar vibe to it Definitely. and then of course the pointer sisters and and yep. then when you start like reading the liner notes, it's like all the same session musicians that are playing on all these records right and then you and then you see that name, David Rubinson, the producer, like you know behind all these records and so when I first came here to tour the place and I met the studio manager Jack he was like, yeah, man, Studio D, that, that was like David Rubinson's like production room. So like Crazy. all of those records were done here. And, and then one, one day Will Blades brought Mike Clark over here and he told us even more history of, of this room. And, uh, and not, not only was it, you know, the room that hosted so many of these recording sessions, but it also happened to be the room where Mike Clark like chanted in, in order to get, the groove to actual proof, right? I think that they were cutting actual proof downstairs in studio a, right. And, uh, and it wasn't working so well. And so Mike excused himself to go to the restroom and the bathroom is right next to my studio. And he came up here and snuck into the studio and it was dark in the room and he just chanted. And then he came downstairs and David Rubinson was like, all right, man, you, you got one more take in you. And if it doesn't work, we're going to go to a straight feel. And then they nailed it. And then he was like, well done, man. You just, you just sealed your, your moment in history. Right. Wow. Yeah. I think will 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 might have a recording of, of Mike telling that story behind behind my drum set, you know, (laughs) that's amazing. But we didn't, we didn't know that God made me funky and all that headhunter stuff without Herbie was done in this room too. And, And Mike told this all and you know that's like one of the most sampled hip hop breaks of oh, all yeah. time you know of course of and, course uh, and in the charlie brown the vince garaldi um the uh what is it the the thanksgiving special that was done all all the music was done in this room too mike played the drums on that so right so. right and uh, yeah man i mean and then later too i mean tupac did his yeah, first I was record yeah i
1: remember being up there seeing the tupac i mean just all all genres it's just like so much legendary music yeah. in that room. Yeah, we could talk about that for the whole podcast. Yeah, we, but... <laughs> we may have to come back and just do a yeah. do a Hyde Street uh podcast. But oh, that'd be fun. I, I do want and then I wanna get into um, you know, your your pathway to to getting to Otis McDonald. But before we get there, um is there a particular song on the album, on the always album that Surprised you in terms of like, because I have one, or I have a couple, but like in terms of where it started and where it ended.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I have a, I have a couple, but I, I'd say hold tight is the one. So you came out here to visit me, and you were on your way, uh, to camp up in Montana. Or, yeah, in Montana. Or, yeah. yeah, and uh, and I loaned you my backpack guitar, or my folding right. guitar That's that my right. brother yeah. helped design, and then when you came back. Um, you stayed with Justine and I for a couple of nights and um, you had written that song on that guitar um, and it and it had a very like campfire singer-songwriter vibe as yeah. it would yeah. when you're around a fucking campfire with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it was very literal. Yeah. Very literal. And uh, and I remember, you know, you showed it to me and then you went back home to LA and then um, you texted me a couple of days later and sent me the voice memo, that same recording you showed me and you were like man can you make this like soulful and yeah, uh yeah. he's like cuz it right now it's a little too like kumbaya or something yeah, like that yeah, you know yeah. and uh i was like sure man you know let let me work with it and and that was like around end of august getting into september at that point yeah and uh and so you you left me with it and the first thing i did is i i just came up with um like a 68 you know, drum groove, you know, just very gospel, like, you know, something like How Does It Feel or something like that by yep. D'Angelo, you know. I think I sent it back. To, I might have sent you back the drums. Yeah, you
1: did. I remember I started messing around with it over the over your drums at yeah. one point initially.
2: And this is, this uh, you know, is what it means to me, or it, this is why it's meaningful to me. But you sent it back to me and I started working on it. And and it happened to be when Lauren went into, into birth with, with Lewis, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, or into labor, sorry, yeah, into yeah, birth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she went into labor. So you were in the hospital, and I'm sitting here working on this track, and uh, I laid down some piano, and I laid down bass, and I was just, like, trying to really make it gospel and soulful. And then uh, and Will Blades happened to be in town. I was like, "Man, Will, you want to throw down some organ on this?" And and he was like, "Yeah, sure." Yeah, and He killed and it, he, by the way. And he yeah. he just brought it to the the yeah. the next level. Yeah. And uh, and then I I I sent it back to you, and I think I might have like put a scratch lead vocal just to give you a couple of ideas or something. Yeah. And uh, and then. Yeah, I was like, dude, we made this while, you know, while you were having your son. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> while yeah. your
2: son was literally being birthed in, and yeah. I remember you just like wrote me back and I think you you might have said you were in tears or something and
1: Well, yeah, that and- that song is, you know, about becoming a dad. I and I, when I went on that Montana trip, I was hanging out with one of my good friends, uh Kevin Vilkin, and you know, now that I'm putting the record out, I'm actually want to dedicate that song to his his dad, his dad um and I hung really really tight on that trip, and uh, I'm good friends with both of his sons, Jeff Vilkin, and he just kind of like took me around with him fishing the whole time. And he he wasn't like talking directly to me, saying like, "Okay, now that you're becoming a dad, this is this and this is that." You know what I mm-hmm. mean? He was just like dropping these little nuggets of daddom on mm-hmm. me because both his <laughs> kids, well, both of his kids, are like people I really admire in what they do and who they are as people. So, and I was just kind of absorbing, uh, some of his, some of his wisdom and some of the lines were direct quotes. Like, uh, it might be, you know, like, like it was kind of funny, but like the traversing up the hill. Cause like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, we were hiking up these hills and it was like, Oh, well, if you, you know how to get up that hill, right? You just got to go side to side, you know, or he'd be like, <laughs> you know, all these little, so there's all these little hidden, the literal things that are broader, have broader meaning in the song. And oh, yeah, uh, man. so, and, and unfortunately a few months ago, he actually passed away suddenly. That's right. And That's right. Uh, it was it really hit me hard. And then it kind of all came from full circle that like, obviously this song was not only about having a child, but kind of, you know, a dedication to him. Yeah, But um, so I, but what, yeah, when I came back, Um, and it's, it's, I actually kind of forgot that you worked on it while we were actually giving birth to Lewis, but that, that song, um, is probably the most meaningful song on the record to me. Um, and what you did... to it was really amazing because like you said, I was kind of playing it like ding, ding, ga, ding, ga, ding, ga, ding, ga, ding, ga, ding, ding, And I was singing it like that, which is just not stylistically me, like as far as a performer, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I don't, I don't see myself performing it on stage like that, but yeah, I, but then I, I couldn't get out of that zone. I couldn't get out of the zone of ding, ding, ga, ding, ding, yeah. ding, ding, you know, so once you flipped it and I and I came away from it for a while, then yeah. I kind of reapproached it, um, and it became kind of my favorite track.
2: Yeah, you know, in and the we'll, end. And uh, once you once you put down your lead vocals, you you let me really go uh, go wild with the background vocals. Yeah, and yeah. I, and, uh, and and I and I thank you because I, I I had a lot of fun doing that. I was like, yeah. all right,
1: yeah, I'm gonna go for it this time. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? I love yeah. I love how that came out. Um, Yeah, me too, man. And, uh, and then always with you is like kind of those two kind of go together. Um, and that was one of the earliest ones because most of them kind of happened in order, but then that one was an early one that then we kind of came back to. Um, and, uh, there's, there's so many subtle things like a lot. Most of the record is pretty straightforward. It's like drums, bass, piano, organ, There's some horns. Uh, always with you, we got deeper into intricacies, um, yeah. and I remember yeah. that one's the one that we spent the most time, I'd say, mixing and and editing. Yeah,
2: and we yeah we were and we were on pedal the whole time. Yeah, working, yeah. working on that. Yeah, because yeah, it had so many layers to it. So many. I mean, the demo or whatever you want to call it that you had sent me already had a lot of layers. I think yeah. you were working with a percussionist on, uh, on the original version of it or yeah, yeah. there was like, or maybe that was you. I don't know. It was like, Cajon I think it was and... me
1: playing, playing Cajon. And then my buddy had sang with me, Coford, Alex Coford, and, uh, on uh, some of it. And then at the very, I think it was towards the end of it. I added, I asked Victoria to sing on it yeah, and man. she just like crushed it.
2: Yeah, I mean she brought it to a whole new level because of the the air that is in her voice. Like yeah, yeah. I remember you the first time I heard Victoria was when, that first time you came here to the studio and you played yeah. me that song Drama and I like lost yeah. my shit. I was like this is like one of the greatest pop songs I've ever heard right yeah, here. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, incredible. Yeah. And and the, just the quality of her voice, it's like it immediately draws you in. And so the fact that you had her not only singing on top of the harmonies with you, like, and you can feel the presence just because of that air in her voice, but then you featured her on that last verse, and it just like, I mean, it just it kind of makes me weep a little bit. I, I listened to the whole album last night, right when it came out, and yeah. like when it got to that moment, I was just like, I had, I got chills, you know, just yeah. just the, the same way I felt the first time I heard it.
1: What, and the way the little synth things that you added in there. And mm. and then Ryan Zoitis, synth saxophone makes a couple tiny little appearances in there. A couple little <laughs> you know, appearances. You know I mean? That's right. Um, we which some we people, snuck it but, in there. Yeah, we snuck it in there. And then also, um, I was playing the song for my baby once he was like maybe a month old or something. And you oh, can yeah, hear right. him in the track Um, because I just recorded like a voice memo while it was playing on my stereo I think and he happened to like hit this rattle on That's the right. one like the right rattle. on the one of and it's like in the key. beginning Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. he just hits it and like I, I mean the, you know it's probably completely random but I was like oh my god we gotta keep that in there so I sent yeah. it to you and you're like I know we put all that reverb on it yeah, we're like yeah. yes
2: it's, it's, it's like a, almost the beginning of like a prayer yeah, or something yeah. like that
1: <laughs> it's but, like uh, ching. <laughs> but he's been continuing to do that ever since like he always like plays like the right key on the one on the piano like when the song comes on it's like it's probably random but i i don't know he definitely he i know that his excitement for music is like beyond you know oh man i know it's the same with with your boys too oh
2: yeah yeah they're they're deep into it blake you know my my six month old is i mean obviously brent is really into music and you've seen him and he's like obsessed with the Beatles shout out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But Blake, Blake is really fun to watch. You know, I, anytime I have a moment where it's just the two of us, like I'll put on something, you know, complex, like, uh, you know, it could be Beethoven, but it could be like Mahavishnu orchestra. And you never, I just like want to try different things to see, like, how is this kid going to react to like all this different music? And he just gets so fucking zoned in on it. it especially, it was crazy putting on Mahavishtu Orchestra. Like, I put on the Vital Transformation, you know, that, like, crazy yeah. drum intro. Yeah. And yeah. he just, like, he, like, looked up at me. was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, yeah, dude, we're about to do this. Mommy's not home. We're going to
1: crank this <laughs> shit up. <laughs>
0: That's hilarious.
1: We'll be right back after this short break. Well, I want to, I want to shift gears and uh, get into, get into Otis McDonald over here. So, oh. so, so people that don't know, over here. <laughs> if you don't mind, I need to explain that your real name's Joe Begale and it's always yeah. like hard for me cause I call you Joe, but then people know you as Otis. Um, yeah. So maybe we'll explain a little bit of that in, in a second. But, but first off, I just want to hear about, you know, music coming up for you, your family, um, I know drums was your first instrument. Am I, am yeah. I correct? Tell me a little yeah. bit about what, what was going on in your house musically.
2: Well, I, so I was really lucky. My, my father was a high school music teacher and, uh, and he, you know, and he, he taught like ensembles, you know, wind ensemble, jazz ensemble and music theory and stuff. But he also, um, really pushed, uh, the music, Technology program on this this um, this one high school in uh, Penfield, New York, and because he was always you know fiddling around with gadgets, whether it was like uh, MIDI and synthesizers but also tape machines and so we always had a a pretty cool little makeshift recording studio in our house and uh, and the instruments always set up and my earliest experiences with like seeing music performed was when my dad would rehearse with groups that he was gigging with, you know, up in our attic. And, uh, and then it was around third grade is when I, I started to get a little more interested in music and uh, interested in, in playing music. I should say, I was always into listening to music. Um, But my two older brothers um, both started playing the guitar around the same time. My, my brother Adrian was in college and my brother Peter was in uh, middle school. And, uh, and, and in third grade, there was a jazz ensemble that came to school. And I, I, I went to a city school, number 37 school, (laughs) that's what it was called. And, uh, and we didn't really have access to, you know, a good music program or anything, but we had this one teacher that was friends with some local jazz musicians. They came over and played. And I, I was so excited about the upright bass. I thought that thing was so cool. And I came home from school and I told my brother, Adrian, I was like, man, I want to play the bass. I saw the bass today. And he was like, yeah, well your brother and I both play the guitar. So you maybe you should play the drums. (laughs) I was like, well, okay. (laughs) You know, just doing whatever my brother told me. So he he brought me upstairs and he showed me just a basic rock pattern. And, uh, I don't know, man, it, it felt like, you know, it went by so fast, but I was probably up there for two hours, just like trying to make the coordination connect. And once I had it, um, I was just so blown over just by like many things, like obviously the satisfaction of just like feeling a groove, but also just like the, the creative coordination and like the, the feeling of success of like getting it to work. And I just, every day would come home and play that same drum beat. It was the only thing I knew how to play. And then, and then my dad, you know, he would come home from school and he'd hear me up there and, and he started, you know, just giving me some pointers and, and we eventually tried to do lessons with him teaching me, and that just didn't go very well because it's my dad as well as the teacher. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was just like, and he knew it too. He was like, yeah, you know, just keep playing the drums. And and um and then in fifth grade, uh, I was uh, I started going to a, a suburb school, and um and we had a, a band program, and it was introduced in fifth grade. And I wanted to play percussion, but you know, all the kids wanted to play percussion, and then I was interested in playing the saxophone because. Bill Clinton was president and I saw him play sax on Arsenio Hall. And I was like, well, I want to play sax, you know, but everybody wanted to play saxophone. And uh, and my dad was like, you know, you should play the trombone, man. You know, not not a lot of people play the trombone. And I actually have one you can have. And it's a great instrument. And so I started I started playing trombone. And uh, and that was really my introduction to like reading music and kind of, you know, understanding theory that I could then apply to the drum set because I was just reading rhythms and then I could start applying it to other instruments I was interested in. And, and also in fifth grade, the band at that time was Nirvana and, and, and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, but, but specifically Nirvana, I was, I was really interested in what they were doing and I wanted to know how to play that on the guitar. And, um, so my brother Peter showed me how to play bar chords. And, uh, and that was just like a lightning bolt went off. I was like, holy shit, I can play every chord as a bar chord if I wanted to, you know? And, uh, and so I just like learned every Nirvana song and just would play it at school. I'd bring my guitar to school and show the kids I knew how to play it. And, and, uh, and then I kind of felt like I didn't know where else to go. And, uh, and I was in my dad's studio digging around and, and I found this Lennon and McCartney songbook and it had the little chord charts at the top, you know, like the little diagrams that yeah, shows yeah. you where your fingers go.
0: Yeah.
2: And so uh, I think the very first song I tried to learn how to play was Mother Nature's Son off of uh, the White Album. And so I would have been in sixth grade at this time. and uh, And that was it, man. I just started just learning all these different Beatles tunes and... And then, uh, and then I was also very interested in the bass because, like, why not? You know, when we had one around, yeah. So I started playing the bass and then I started teaching myself how to play the piano, and that was all in middle school. And uh, and then my dad showed me the tape machine, and actually, I have this tape machine right here next to me. It's this this Fostex eight track reel to reel. And uh, and I told my dad I'd written a song, and he was like, Oh, yeah, he was like, Well, you know, let's let's record it, and uh. So he showed me how the tape machine worked really quickly, and then he just left me alone. And uh, And I laid down drums, and then I heard the drums back, and, and it sucked. And so I laid it down again, and I, I kept doing it until I could get it. But that first moment that I I played guitar over my drums, I and then I heard it all come back together, I was just like, holy shit, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like, you can... Yeah you can overdub like I had tried to do that when I was like a little kid by taking a boom box and like, Beatboxing on the the built-in microphone, and then taking that tape and putting it in a cassette player and blasting it out of the speakers, and then recording on yep. the boombox with I, another I, cassette tape. I fully did that too. <laughs> yeah, man. You did that. Yeah. So I didn't know that there was like you know machines that could do it in a, like a high quality way. And yeah. And so I I started my first band in seventh grade by writing my own songs and recording them, and then. I would show it to other kids that were interested and uh and then I just like put together a band and we started playing my original songs and then we also started learning Beatles songs and U2 and Hendrix and right. and we I played my first gig when I was in 7th grade we played the school dance and we got yeah. paid like $35 for the whole band. Nice. <laughs> you know? Then I like lugged my dad's PA system in our station wagon to the <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, like do yeah. the whole thing and that band was called Figment, you know, cuz I think I saw the the Disney doll of the the, like it's like a dragon or something and and uh and we just started playing like (laughs) you know kids started having parties we play like bar mitzvahs (laughs) and shit like that you know you playing drums I was singing and playing guitar. Oh, I singing and playing guitar. Okay. Yeah. I was I was but we would play Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin and I would go back on the drums so I could fucking take a drum so <laughs> <laughs> you gotta flex, man. Come I I gotta, gotta flex yeah. a little bit, you yeah. know. Yeah. And uh yeah. And then when I got into high school, uh it was like literally like right before my freshman year of high school when my my pop sat me down and he was like, Look, man, you know, you're obviously very interested in music and you play all these instruments um, you know, what is it that you are, are serious about? Because you should start getting serious now. So you're ready to like audition for school. And uh, which was kind of a daunting thing to lay on a 14 year old. But I was just yeah. like, well, you know, the drums is the thing I think I know how to play the best. And that's what I'm most interested in. And he's like, all right, cool. Well, if you're serious about the drums, then I need to connect you with a teacher. And he connected me with this guy, Rich Thompson. And uh, Rich Thompson was uh, in the eighties was uh, or maybe early nineties was the drummer for the Count Basie Orchestra. Oh wow! And then he also happened to be the drum set professor at the Eastman School of Music, and uh, and and Rochester is is the birth of a lot of great musicians, but you know it's also the birth of Steve Gadd. You know, and if you're a drummer growing up in Rochester, it's pretty fucking hard for Steve Gadd to not be your favorite drummer. <laughs> you know? and so I wanted to, I wanted to, you know follow suit of like something like you know Steve Gadd like and so who do you who do you study with well there was all these up-and-coming drummers this guy Bill Freeberg and then this guy Ted Poor, who's I don't know if you know do you know who Ted Poor is have I, I showed don't.
1: him to you oh My actually man. you know what you did say I did watch a video of
2: of, oh. uh, of him yeah he's he's playing with Andrew Bird now but he right. I mean he like sat in with like Wynton Marcellus when he was like in eighth grade and wow. then and then, you know, he's gone on to play with Bill Frizzell and Pat Metheny and Kwang Vu and like all these just like amazing artists. And and uh, anyway, so Ted was a couple of years older than me and I saw him play at the All County Jazz Band. My brother Peter was playing guitar and this eighth grader was playing drum set and he was so fucking crushing. And I was like, who is that guy? And my dad was like, that guy studies with the teacher I want to set you up with. And yeah. Yeah. So I was like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. And so I started studying with Rich and, uh, and then I just became a, a jazz snob, you know, for better lack of words in high school. And, uh, and because I thought that's what I was supposed to do, you know, learn how to yeah. play all this complex shit. And, but jazz just seemed like the right thing to learn on the drum set, just to learn how to like control all the coordination and, and, and also just learn how to really finesse an instrument, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then I think it was, uh, the end of my freshman year, it was like springtime freshman years when John Schofield's Agogo record came out and John Schofield was always being played in our household, like from like pick hits live and still warm. And then all his early nineties, like uh, the, the, the quartet hand jive too hand jive. Yeah. Bill Stewart, Joe Lovano. Yeah. All that shit, man. Did you ever
1: mess with the album called who's who? Did you ever hear that one? It's a, it was on like an That's obscure like, label. It was in the yeah. 70s, late '70s. It's Steve Jordan on drums, like as like a teenager, I think. Oh, it's Steve Jordan. I'm pretty sure it's yes. And it was uh, Gary Granger on bass. Oh yeah, and he went on. He still he continued to play with Sko in the yeah, '80s. Yeah, and, and he yeah. was in the Dennis Chambers band too. But the That's one right. the that record is a, is kind of slept on, but it's killing. Yeah, killing. Oh, man. I had a random copy of it like in high school, and like no he... one had that. I may have talked to you about it. I think yeah. I, it might be on Spotify.
2: I think it is. Yeah. I I think I went and looked it up after you talked about it with Sco on on his interview on yeah. your podcast. Yeah, well, I was we like, played
1: I... a song of off that. I think it's called Who's Who uh, with Lettuce when he sat in with Lettuce and he was like, "I haven't heard that in thirty years," <laughs> you know. And I was like, <laughs> "It was it, the reason I loved it too, is because it was like." That funk era, but before he'd found the chorus pedal, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean. It was like yeah. right before the chorus pedal, and then he kind of got rid of the chorus pedal at, at a go go. I mean, I loved him no matter what, but then when he yeah. did a go go with MMW, that was like game changer.
2: That that yeah, that was that was a major major shift for me because it it introduced me to Medeski Martin and Wood first of all, yeah. but it but it also made me remember like what drew me into music originally, which was basically like funky, groovy shit. You know, I was born in 83. The first music I ever remember hearing was Michael Jackson, you know, and that shit made me funky. And then I remember my, my uncle, my uncle Chris gave me a dubbed cassette of Dangerous. And then, you know, we, you know how when you used to have cassettes, you would put like filler at the end, like if they're, you know, just yeah. to use up the rest of the tape. Yeah. And, uh, and he put Earthwind and Fire at the end of it, like two tracks off of All in All. And I yeah. was like, after Dangerous was over, that shit came out. And I was like, what is
1: this shit? You yeah, know? yeah. And,
2: I, that, and I would think I was in fourth grade the first time I heard EWF. And I was yeah. just like, oh my God. And so I was like obsessed with funk music while simultaneously Getting super deep into the Beatles when I was in middle school, and then eventually progressive rock like Yes and Gentle Giant and stuff, and and then I just kind of like left all the, all that behind because I wanted to become a jazz musician. And and when I heard a Go Go, I was like, oh no, you can do both. Like you can be funky and chops or whatever. But that album doesn't. It's not showing off chops at all. It just makes you feel good and. And I remember the first time I heard that song "Chank," I was I'd never I'd never heard "Cold Sweat" before by James Brown. Wow, heard, really? Okay. I heard "Chank" first. You wow, know? crazy! And yeah. I was and I because I I mean I knew like a couple of hits by James Brown, but I I never really dug into his stuff. Yeah. But that that was like my gateway into James Brown because I remember Schofield had a website at the time, and the internet was still kind of brand new to us. Yeah. Like, in, this is ninety eight. Yeah. And I remember going to the John Schofield website and he had handwritten charts for that album that you could print and it was like skoe's handwriting yeah. and i could print out i could print it out on my dad's printer and and i remember looking at the chank chart that he'd written it was like a lead sheet and it said cold sweat type groove and i was yeah. like well what is cold sweat you know and i had to like look that up and uh and Google wasn't around, so I had to like ask around. You know, yeah. did anybody know what Cold Sweat is, you know? <laughs> and then yeah. I found out Cold Sweat was a James Brown tune, and I heard that. And then so fucking fall of ninety eight, Schofield comes to Rochester with Modesky, Martin, and Wood. However, Billy Martin Clyde Summerfield. Was-
1: yeah. I know. Yeah. I so Billy Martin tour. wasn't there yeah.
2: because his 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 wife was having a baby and, know, and they had Clyde Stubblefield on drums, yeah, the yeah. cold sweat guy, and I was just like holy shit, you know. Yeah. And then uh you know, I I was like anticipating like when is the next John Schofield record going to come out, you know, yeah. sophomore year or whatever and uh and i don't think another album came out until maybe my junior year of high school but what happened is fucking soul Live came out and yeah, i was yeah. like
1: oh my god more organ and funk and guitar like and Schofield was probably on that right it was a turned out was. that you heard yeah
2: yeah that's why i heard it i was yeah. it was uh, a friend of mine in school was like oh man if you like that you should hear Sko with this band soul Live, and then you know they yeah. gave me a dub a dub cassette of that record and i just like would bump it when I was like cleaning the house and shit and yeah. And uh, yeah. And then I started checking you guys out and, and then, you know, the other major turning point was my senior year of high school. I was at the all state jazz conference playing drum set. And, uh, and there was this girl I was crushing on super hard who was a singer in the jazz choir and she could do the like most amazing imitation of Erica Badu. Yeah. Yeah. And and I knew about Erica Badu, but I wasn't really listening to any contemporary pop or R and B music. Um but I thought Erica Badu was cool. I think I saw her on like Regis and Kathy Lee or some shit. And yeah, I was like, yeah. oh man, she's hip, you know? Yeah. And uh but then I really wanted to check her out because I wanted to like be able to talk to this girl about Erica Badu or whatever. And uh in my senior year is when Mama's Gun came out, so I, I just like I picked up her newest album, and I fucking, like, it changed my life. Like, that album changed my life. I, I had my license. I was driving my parents' Oldsmobile station wagon around, listening to that cassette tape, and probably smoking weed with my, my homies or something, you know? But yeah. I remember hearing that song, AD 2000, which was, like, the first song on the second side of the tape. And, uh, and I just, like, it, it transported me into into all these different worlds that like reminded me of Stevie Wonder, which I was into as a kid, but, but then like, it had this like hip hop vibe to it. And, and, and I should, I should note that at that same time, my friends and I were all really into a tribe called Quest, which yeah. I was in into in eighth grade, you know, when they were putting out their records, but we were revisiting that stuff junior and senior year of high school. And, naturally, you know, somebody introduced us to The Roots and we were like, oh, this is fucking cool. You know, it's a live hip hop band. Yeah. So I was really interested in Questlove. And then, you know, I looked at the liner notes on Mama's Gun. And I'm like, oh, this is that dude. This is Questlove yeah. playing yeah. drums. And and then that same year, there was like this article in Time Magazine that it was like a small, short little interview with Questlove. And he's he's talking about albums he was really proud of playing on. And he mentioned that and he mentioned Voodoo by D'Angelo. But I I didn't really pay much attention to that until I was eventually in college studying jazz and I was obsessed with Erica Badu and not obsessing enough about Art Blakey right. <laughs> or right. whatever I was supposed to be listening to. And some of the kids there were like, dude, if you have you ever heard Voodoo by D'Angelo? And I was yeah. like, No, no, I heard about it, but I've never checked it out and And they fucking burned me a CD, and then I went up into a practice room, and I I was sitting behind the drums with my headphones on the first time I put that record on, and and that was it. I was like... I'm not doing the right thing by going to school here. Literally, it's like made me want to drop out of college. I just like wasn't. I was. I knew I wasn't going to learn how to do that at the Eastman School of Music. Like I needed. I needed to get back into writing songs and recording and learn how to make
1: music that made me feel this way. You know, it's that album really did that for a lot of people. You know, a lot. Someone asked. I did an interview the other day, and someone was like. Hey, did you mean to to sound like D'Angelo on on our on Always on that record? And I was like, uh-huh. if anything, I mean to not because there's so yeah. much of that in me the, sure. from in my DNA because I was so in love with that record and that sound that mm-hmm. I have to. <laughs> if anything, I have to try not to. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's so there and it's so much. I listened to that album more than any album of all time. Um, uh, yeah. in fact, yeah, it, in fact, it was in my CD player that during that when of the year it came out and got stuck in there and I was happy about it, you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> which is like the
1: only album I could say that about. Um, oh, man. but yeah, that yeah. album had such a huge effect on so many people. And it was, the thing is some albums come out that, um, have a huge wave and then it, it kind of like that wave evolves and, and other artists emulate it and da 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 and a lot of mm-hmm. people tried to emulate that album but it, no one even came close in my opinion no so like voodoo kind of. it's one of those few albums that really stands on its own and it's like its own category or something you know like oh
2: yeah it's still so fresh sounding today yeah, today it's a it yeah it is a timeless record. Yeah. In the same way that the White album like still sounds fresh when you listen to it. Right. Or right. or like or any Stevie record from his like little Renaissance period. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like it's just that's what I realized listening to that and the, and that Erica Badou record. It was like I wanna make music that just sounds good forever. You know? Right. It's like it's it's not just like this one moment in time. And a lot of that R and B music that was happening in the nineties, I mean, I'm sure you can recall, I mean, it was it just wasn't very cool, yeah you know? yeah, yeah and and this, and, and this was, was so like glossy a,
1: and corny, so glossy and, yeah.
2: and and just like quantized and yeah. like not funky, yeah, and this and, in these records like it it paid reverence to like this old shit, but it still sounded new too, yeah, like yeah. sonically it sounded new, you know absolutely and uh and i I had always been like a a major music history buff in in the sense that like. The only way my parents got me to read was by buying me like the rock and roll encyclopedia, <laughs> you right, know, and then right. and and so I would obsess about things, you know. The say, I mean, you've been in my studio. You see my Beatles shelf. Like I'm yeah. just obsessed with those guys, probably more than anybody. Yeah. But I started obsessing about what eventually went on to be called like the Soulquarians and like I when when Commons like Water for Chocolate came out and then eventually Electric Circus. Like I started like. I started learning that it was like, you know, reading the liner notes, thank, thank God for fucking liner notes. I wish kids now had liner notes, but I I would just see it was all the same musicians. And then I, you know, I could get on the internet and like learn on, you know, message boards that's like, oh, it was all done in electric lady land. Oh, they were all there at the same time. They were like running around from studio to studio and, well, you were there
1: like around that time, right? Or I, I actually got to be around there. I, I, I moved to New York kind of as the tail end of that was happening, and I was working with Quali a bunch, and mm-hmm. I got to work with Russ uh, Russ Elvado a lot yeah, and Quest, and amazing. I, I was kind of on the tail end of it, but I got to be around for some of those sessions, which was epic. You know, just like all those people in that room, and I got to play on the Al Green record that those guys produced that Um, record
2: was so big for me the one in 2008
1: yeah man i mean well the whole the um one of my favorite guitar players um spanky uh, spanky was the guitarist on that record and he passed away right at the tail end of the session and they actually brought me in to do like the last couple sessions (laughs) um that's amazing I'm sorry I don't mean to laugh I'm just like I'm just kind of blown away
2: that I didn't even know you were on that record. I mean you've told me this before but like I remember the first time you told me that I was like what
1: (laughs) yeah well the I I don't even know the the main song I played on a few things but the one that I remember the session I really remember was a duet with with Sharon Jones and that song did not make the record so the what? one that I was really stoked about is not on the record, although I think I am credited on the album. But I actually need to look back and see. Um, so I, the I mean Spanky's the guitarist on the record. I just like yeah, happened yeah, to be sure. around. And, but the song that I played on top to bottom was um, uh, this yeah a duet with Sharon Jones, and it did not what? come out. Which I I want to I want to hear it someday. I, I I don't someone's got it. Questlove. I gotta see if Russ, has, if Quest has it or if Russ has If you're listening,
2: it. yeah. Slash, I want to meet you. Yeah, I, I think you're fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's the man. He's the man. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he he's a major influence on my the you know my sound on the drums. You know, I, yeah. He I, I would put him in the top top five. You know, it's like Steve Gadd, Clyde Stubblefield, Bernard Purdy, yeah. Quest Love, you know, and Dilla, you know. Yeah. Of oh, course. and then and then let's just briefly talk about Dilla for a second of because course, yeah. I didn't know who JD was until I found out about him the day that he died or maybe the day after he died. I was at a party and a DJ there was, was, was mourning his loss. And he, he, it was like a major influence on him. And then he started playing me Dylan and then showing me the records that he was on. And I was like, Oh, I've been listening to all this since I was in like 13, you know, I didn't know, you know? And then I started realizing it was like, Oh, he's like, the lineage like that's the guy yeah. that connects it all that that slumpy thing and yeah i remember <laughs> not to get off top but i remember listening to d'angelo listening to voodoo with my dad we we i put on that song the root and yeah I, and I, I thought that shit was so amazing and I, I think my pops had a couple of drinks in him, and he was just like the drummer's um He's not sounding so yeah, good. He's not good, yeah. No, that was, that happened to me, too. Like,
1: a lot of people I'd play that for would be like, you like this? And I'm like, it's the greatest thing of all time. They're like, hmm. You know, because like, it was so behind and so weird. But it, um, Isn't that funny? Yeah, like, I don't, but, you know, little did a lot of people know that it would influence... So many people, like oh almost over, yeah, almost too much. Like there was an era where like too many people were going, like going too yeah, far it, with the drum yeah. thing and it actually annoyed the crap out of me. But um, yeah, me too. overall, <laughs> like, you know, it's undeniable the influence from that whole crew. It's amazing that JD could like, you know, I mean,
2: he he he, he was programming with a drum machine that. That he would influence the way drummers would play, right? From the, I mean, in in the same way that Tony Williams did, right. you know, or right. Max Roach. Right, it's like right. That's pretty huge, man. Oh, that's you know, it's, that's massive. Yeah, massive. and then you know, a guy like Chris Dave takes that shit and goes and then he, yeah, and and, takes and he it takes further. it to a whole new level, <laughs> and now he's influencing all these yeah. young yeah. drummers and. The first time I ever saw Chris Dave actually was seeing you, seeing Soul Live. Like, he was playing with Michelle, and they yep. opened for you guys at the Fillmore. Yep, one yep. One of the first shows I ever saw. And I actually met you. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, I met you the night before. You guys played two nights in a row. And I yeah. met you at the Boom Boom Room, and uh, and Cy Smith was hanging out. And, nice, uh, I was nice. Bummed. I was bummed because I wanted to see Michelle really bad, too. And I, I didn't know the show started earlier. I think it was like a Sunday night or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I totally missed Michelle's set. But we met Cy at the Boom Boom Room when you guys were all jamming. And she put me and my roommate on the list for the next night. And so we got to come back. Oh, and that, that was the first time I saw Chris Dave. And oh, I was yeah. just like, oh, That was shit. a
1: blast, man. Comfort woman. Yeah. That was the yeah. record. My brother was managing her at the time. So it yeah. was a very like interesting time. I, I love Michelle. She's one of the sweetest, nicest people oh. in the world. One uh, of
2: the greatest artists. I yeah. mean, a, a true fucking artist. Yeah. Like, and no album of her sounds
1: the same. That's what. That's that's you know, and that was frustrating um, for my well, for the management side of things because right when she'd like about to hit with something, she'd go a whole other direction, which I loved as an I artist. I love that too. Yeah. yeah. And like yeah. you know, I I have the same issue sometimes, but uh, I love all her records for different yeah. for different reasons.
2: Right right yep. before I moved out here, somebody introduced me to her. Um, I mean, I had known, I, I knew that hit that she did with John Cougar Mellencamp because right, it was like yeah. on MTV all the yeah, time, yeah. you know. But that was really all I knew about her. And then um, it was right before I moved out here, a friend uh, hipped me to cookie the anthropological mixtape. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, and that, that I moved out here listening to that record a bunch. I would carry it and I had my man. Yeah. I'd be on, on this, not the subway, but they call it the Muni out here, you know, on my way to my waiting on tables job, listening to that record. And, and then, uh, and then Comfort Woman came out like, uh, the day that you guys were playing that show at the Fillmore, that was like the release day of it. Yeah. And yeah. So I was obsessed with that, but. Cookie, the anthropological mixtape, was also made in this fucking studio oh, that I'm sitting oh, in right sure now. It. Yeah, yeah. I so actually, that was kind of full I, circle
1: I, for me. I actually got to be there for a lot of the uh, Comfort Woman woman sessions, just because my brother was managing her, and I had a room in that studio in King. We had uh, oh. one of the rooms, and she was recording it next door. So I was just in there, like watching and listening, like. While they were making that record, which was awesome, and Bob Power mixed that. Um, oh, he did! I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, he ended oh. up mixing our record or, or a couple of ours, the songs from the record we were working on at that time too. And I became good <laughs> friends with him, and he was like a hero uh, ah, for me yeah. at that time. So that was that was awesome, um, amazing. But yeah, those were those. That was a fun tour. I remember that Fillmore show specifically because someone gave me some pot butter. <laughs> and i like put it on something thinking it was thinking it was like you know oh i won't even feel this and i got so i was high for like three days uh but that's yeah awesome. that, that's i don't but I remember it was that night because i gave something to chris dave and he had like twice as much as me and he was like, oh, what shit? You about? <laughs> please stick around we'll be right back after this short break Uh, so I want to get into how Joe Bigel became, became Otis McDonald. Otis.
2: <laughs> well, so it was around 2000, it was 2013. So from 2012 to basically the end of 2013, I, I, I uh, sang lead vocals and played uh, keyboards for Mickey Hart. Uh, and that was kind of a full circle thing. Like uh, yeah. I used to listen to the dead when I was a kid and. Of course, being a drummer who didn't listen to Planet Drums, you know, when you were a yeah, kid in the '90s, that yeah. so I got to go out and and also play with some of my um heroes, you know, from the jam band days, like Dave Schools was in the band and and then Secreto de on the Talking Drum. It was wow. so I got to do that for two years and play all these great dead songs and also even get to play with guys like Bob and and uh, and Billy as well and at the Fillmore. <laughs> wow, know, it's yeah, crazy and uh, and then. That took me out on the road for a couple of years, and and I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I'm sure you've experienced this before, but, um, you know, when you're, like, a local musician in town, and then you go out on tour, everybody just kind of assumes you're just gone. Like, that's it. You're not a part of the scene. And so when I came back, I couldn't really get any gigs, you know, (laughs) because all these other drummers were getting the gigs. And so I was just, you know trying to figure out how am I going to make money? Cause basically all the money I had made on those tours, I spent on Justine and, 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 my wedding, you know, we, we had this beautiful wedding down in Mexico and invited our family down. And, and so, yeah, we were out of cash. And, um, one of my, my, uh, close buddies who I actually met at that same all state jazz conference where I met that girl that was in Eric Badu, my buddy, Mike, can canyon what's up sorry. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, mike uh mike had just um gotten a job at google and uh and specifically at youtube and uh he was a part of the team that was putting together the youtube audio library and uh and all the people on that team were just reaching out to people that were in their network of musicians to create original content or i'm sorry original music that could be um distributed on YouTube's platform for video creators to use in their videos royalty free. I was like obviously down because I you know I wanted to get some money to make original music but the thing that was so enticing to me was that not only was I going to be paid for my work but also I was going to get full credit for it. So anytime somebody downloaded a track from the audio, the audio library it would say my name next to it in their iTunes library or whatever. Um, and, uh, so I made 10 tracks for me. Everybody got tried out with 10 tracks. It was like kind of an audition, you know? Right. And, uh, and I had made 10 Joe Bigale tracks and in my mind, I, you know, I, okay. At this point I had put out two Joe Bagale records. I didn't even really talk about that, but that's yeah. okay. You know? <laughs> so I, I, you know, was also out here trying to make it as a singer songwriter and, and just, you know, have the Joe Bigale band and do my thing. But, uh, I, Thought of these ten tracks as being my third album, but they were. It was going to be an instrumental album, and I was going to like, you know, put all these tracks out there and tell all my fans that, you know, here's the order of the album. Now go download the tracks and put it together yourself. You know, right, right. To, to, all, to all you know, twenty fans I had or whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But one of the tracks I made, I I had this chorus that to me the melody and the chord changes it really reminded me of Michael McDonald. And I, and I had had this chorus around for a little while. And when I would sing it, I'd be like, <laughs> you
0: know, that's, like <laughs> yeah.
2: that's what I would always sing. And But the song, it, it had to be instrumental. So, and I had just gotten a talk box. So I did the melody on the talk box. Yeah. And when I finished the song, like there was one thing I needed for a trans transition. And I started playing around with this glockenspiel and, um, in the pattern I did it, I couldn't figure out what it reminded me of, but the the rhythm of it like was reminding me of something. And uh and I started like digging through my records and I put on Strawberry Letter 23 by Suggy Otis and I was like, Oh, that's what it reminds me of is that ding 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 ding, da do da You know, that. I was yeah, like yeah. Oh my god. And and I had gotten hip to Shuggy when I first moved out here. He was not on my radar at all. Right, right. Um uh, but you know, he was a Bay Area artist. And so I thought, you know, fuck, this it's got a kind of Shuggy Otis vibe and a Michael McDonald vibe. I'm just going to call the song Otis McDonald. And I just like send it off to YouTube. And that song got used in this video of this girl, like this cute girl, like smiling at the camera and then a fucking spider crawls out of her mouth. And it like, it immediately got like a million views. And then I just started seeing the Joe Bigale YouTube channel just started getting subscriber after subscriber. And I, it like was going viral and I was like, Holy shit, this thing works, you know, this, this type of distribution. And, and, uh, and so then YouTube came back to me and they were like, Hey, we'd love for you to make some more tracks um, is there any way you can make some hip hop beats? Because we're kind of lacking in that department. And I was like, hell yeah! But you know, I had also never made hip hop beats in my life. But I loved hip hop, yeah. And uh, and and my favorite producers were guys like Dilla and Madlib and Q-Tip and Dre. Yeah, you know, guys that were sampling old soul and funk and jazz records, and then you know, making it into hip hop beats. But I couldn't do that because these are royalty free. So I just decided why not make my own samples? Cause the, the music I had been putting out as Joe Bigel was like soulful and funky and jazzy. Like I knew how to make that kind of music. Maybe I could take these little fragments of ideas that I had and just put it in a sampler and try to find something new. Right. And, uh, and the first time I did that, it was, uh, it, it that was a major like lightning ball or lightning yeah. bolt or light bulb, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah, one yeah. of the two going off in my head. And I was like, whoa, this thing sampling is like a composition tool for me, you know? And, and, uh, you know, it's like, it's so daunting to, to like sit down and write a song. And I had been working at that for a long time. And, but like just sitting down at a piano or a guitar and being like, I want to write a song, figure it all out and then go record it. You know, by the time you finish that song, there's been so much procrastinating and, that like a lot of times I just don't like the song at the, at the end of right. it because I've worked on it so hard. And so to to come up with like a quick little idea, which I had just thousands of ideas all the time, just yeah. in my voice memos, I could just take this little idea. Well, so it became a practice. Like I would wake up in the morning, I'd grab my Bob Dylan song lyric book and I'd tell Justine, like flip to a random page and find a line that you like. And she'd find a lyrical line and I'd take that line and try to kind of make it into something new or sometimes just sing that same line. But I'd just write some new music to it and then I'd sample it and, I, yeah. and I'd bring I'd bring it in. Uh, I'd, I was using Recycle at the time, you know, remember Reason? And oh that's yeah, it, oh yeah. Because it. it was the only way I yeah. knew how to do it, you know, and it was very time consuming. But once I got it in there and I had it all mapped out on a keyboard, I started like pitching it up or slowing it down and... And it, and I started re- thinking of like, oh, this is like what the Beatles were doing with like tape machines or Prince or Sly, like they yeah. would use variable speeds. And this is kind of the same thing, but I would just find all this new music within this one little chunk. And then I would start programming beats around it. And so this one little thing just ended up acting as like a conductor for me. And I just got to play to it as if I was a session musician or playing in a band. yeah And then... I just all of a sudden had like thirty tracks, and I and and it was so different than any Joe Begay tracks I'd ever put out, including those instrumentals I had sold to YouTube. Right, right. And that I thought, well, yeah, again, you know, this is like, I'm just like thinking, like, I don't know, my if my fans will understand it, <laughs> my yeah, fans, yeah, like, I didn't yeah. have any fans, you know, but maybe I'll just put out under a different name. And and it was Justine, my wife. She was like. Hey, you should use that name Otis McDonald. It's so catchy. It like it sounds like old McDonald's. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. It'll It'll be like a little sounds
1: like you should know who that is. Like you you know what I mean? It's (laughs) like someone like, yo, you know Otis McDonald. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. Of course (laughs) I know Otis McDonald.
2: Well, I thought it was so cool too, because it was like Shuggy Otis from the Bay. Michael McDonald's not from the Bay, but the yeah. Doobie Brothers are from the Bay. And so yeah, it was yeah. kind of like a shout out to the Bay Area. And I was like, all yeah. right, this will be a cool little alias. And and I'll just do this and I'll make an, a YouTube channel for Otis McDonald. I'll put on these funny sunglasses and just like try to brand it, you know, and yeah. hope – and I would hope that, you know, somebody would use the music in their videos and hopefully they'd credit me because they didn't have to credit me, but, um, you know, and the hope was that a certain percentage of people would see these videos and maybe be interested in the full track and come to my channel. Yeah. And there was these, these two YouTubers, these comedy guys, H3 and then this other guy, iDubs, um, that were really big. They kind of came out of like the... The the do you, do you remember the comedy duo Tim and Eric? It oh, was yeah. like like yeah. yeah. So it was like the early YouTube comedy channels were they really reminded me of Tim and Eric. It was like that kind of vibe, but their own thing, and really appealed to a younger generation. Those two started using my music a ton in their videos, and they would credit me with a link to my channel to the actual track. And so within a year, these Otis McDonald tracks were in three and a half million different videos on YouTube. Wow. And it was almost 8 billion views. Like, and, and, and I quickly was just getting all these subscribers and fans of my music. And anytime I put up a track, like, I would get all these comments and all these, these likes and follows. And I was just like, whoa, this shit is way more popular than anything I've ever done. Yeah. So I'm just going to start putting out music as Otis McDonald now, you know. Right. 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 <laughs> and uh and so I just continued to do that and then eventually stopped doing it with YouTube, but Facebook they went and built their own audio library and they started seeking out some of the people that were a part of the original YouTube um audio library and uh in and, and so I started doing it with uh with Facebook which ended up being even cooler because you know, they have Instagram and and then all this music started showing up in Instagram videos and you know, and I just you know started going all in on Otis McDonald and uh, and and this whole style of like coming up with a sample and then letting that inform how my composition was going to be. Right, right. Um, and I even tried to get back into like the Joe Bigal thing. It's so funny to talk about myself like this, like the yeah, Joe yeah, the thing, third, versus in the Otis the, McDonald
1: third person, <laughs> in yeah. the
2: third person. But I I made that album People Music um which was you know a call back to me writing songs and singing yeah. because yeah. Uh, everybody in town knew me as a singer and uh, or a drummer but all my fans online didn't know anything about me singing because right. it was all mostly instrumental and so i i put together this project on my youtube channel where i put out 15 snippets in 15 weeks of of 15 different song ideas and i had my youtube fans basically vote on which 10 songs would make the album right and, right and and we and we got that that information just from comments and likes and uh across all different social media platforms like what was the 10 most popular tracks uh, some stupid nerdy shit but it worked and i found the 10 tracks that were the most popular and i finished them and i made this album And, uh, and I put it out at the end of 2019 and then it didn't do anything because, you know, the pandemic hit and, or maybe I just wasn't as popular as I was hoping to be. And, and then I, you know, the pandemic hit and I, I started working with you, but then I just had all these instrumental tracks and I just started putting them out every single week. And now I've been doing that for over a year and and that's been working out really nice. So,
1: (laughs) yeah. So for people that don't know, every single Friday, uh, he puts out a track under Otis McDonald and almost pretty much every week you do a live stream um, yep. through your YouTube where you create a track live on camera. And a lot and of so, times those tracks become what you eventually release on one of those Fridays. Am I right? That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It, I'm actually finishing up a lot of the early live stream tracks right
2: now, getting ready to release them this year, Yeah, which is like two years after I made a lot of these tracks but I already had a huge back catalog of music I had not put out on Spotify and all these right. platforms. So when I I looked at, this was in 2020, I looked at this catalog I had. I had over a hundred tracks and I was like, well, that's like two years worth of music if I put out a song every week. Right. And, um, and you know, I looked at Spotify as being something very similar to any other social media platform, you know, because they had likes and follows and all that shit. And, yeah. And I was like, well you know i see all these amazing producers putting out videos all the time on instagram and now tiktok and stuff but none of that the music is available on these traditional streaming platforms you know yeah. so i was just like well shit you know it would it would be more advantageous for me to put it out on spotify because you know hopefully it would get popular but I could also make money off of it too, right? <laughs> right. Know? Right. And so I I started doing that every week, and it 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 really the numbers started going up fast. And I would, it, I well, I realized when I put out people music that you could only pitch one song from an album for for a playlist. Yeah. And the play the playlist was like the radio to me, and that is essentially what these yeah. streaming services are, right? Is the radio? Yeah. Um. And so. I realized that if I put out a track uh, as a single, I could always pitch it. So if I put out a song every single week, I could pitch every single song for a playlist. Right, and then at the end of maybe like thirteen weeks, I would I could compile all those songs as an album. Right, and then pitch pitch one more song, and then start the whole process over again. Right, and um, and for a while I never got any playlist, but then. You know, I think something maybe tricked the algorithm, and then I, you know, or whatever, because it, it can't be actual human beings looking over these. You know, I, think I like, hear it is, uh, is to it? a certain
1: degree. I think that you know, and you gain eventually, you get on the radar, and then that you end up with with fans on the inside, quote unquote. You know, because oh, I because I know that with with my record, um, or with our record, I actually try, took a page out of your book because I was like, you know. I just want to be able so like four or five, four of the singles came out before the record did, and by mm-hmm. the third one, they started catching uh, playlists because it right out the be, out the gate, they may not know me, and they may not know what my like. They may know me from Soul Live, you know what sure. I mean, but they may not know me as an artist. So I think that that um, that that strategy does work of like. I mean, either way, right now in the current day, consistency is like everything. um That's in what terms it is. of being an artist and and manip. Now, I don't want to say manipulating, but utilizing the uh, the streaming services and, and and all that, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, dude, it's like the. I mean, at home, I I still listen to records. I I, I still prefer to put on an album and commit to a side, but the. Like it, it, it would it would be silly to not recognize that streaming services is you know something like Spotify is like the greatest you know source of music distribution that has ever existed. Right. You know the fact right. the fact that I carry all these records around in my pocket on my phone and I could pull up anything yeah. and listen to it. It's incredible, but it's incredible as a listener, but as, as an independent artist who doesn't have a label or doesn't have a publisher that just wants to put out music, I can just upload it myself and then the whole world can listen to my music. Like I, I,
1: it's incredible. And it is incredible. It's a little, it becomes harder for people to find things, but also easier at the same time. But it's such mm -hmm. a sea of music that comes out every week or every day for that matter. Um, you yeah. know, and obviously I think my biggest um, complaint is, you know, what we, the actual percentages that we get as artists um, on plays and whatnot. But I all, you also have to think about this, that like, you know, when you, when someone bought a CD from me 10 years ago, they could play it a bazillion times and I got paid that one time. Now, if someone plays it a bazillion times, I'm getting paid every time, you know, it's just, it's just that we, I think it should be higher. I know we all think it should be higher, but I also, to be honest, think that, Maybe we, it should be a higher price to get it. You know what I mean? It should, I, like Steve Jordan said uh, at one point when I was listening to his podcast – with, uh, with maybe it was with Mark Marin or someone. He was like the current state, you know, at the time Spotify was ten bucks a month. He's like, that's like going into Whole Foods, giving them ten bucks and ransacking the entire store. You know what I mean? <laughs> Dude, that is a great
2: analogy, actually. You know, it's yeah. Why not? Why not charge? I, I would, I would happily pay twenty dollars a month. Yeah. For, to have access to every, to fucking every song recording you know, that's ever happened. You but know? I also
1: think there's a lot that, you know, obviously there's a huge thing going on with Spotify right now, people taking their music off. But I think the conversation is directed in the wrong place. I, I really think the conversation should be more about compensating artists better and also the way that, that the labels and the middlemen are situated. And, you know, because I, I I agree that streaming services on as a whole. Um, does create a lot of opportunity for us, you know.
2: Well, I think I think it the the system that is put in place right now, uh, again is I think it's it is really built for an independent artist, right? Um, I think you know the the people that are are making a big shout about uh, you know not being compensated appropriately are 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 a lot of times are artists that were signed. To these record deals back in the 60s or 70s where, you know, the concept of streaming w- was never around, you know, and and so these these rates that were negotiated was based on the dollar amount of a physical sale. And when that breaks down to like taking half a penny and having to to <laughs> break that into like what the label gets, what the publisher gets, you know, what the writers get, of course, the artists aren't making shit on it, you know. But somebody like me, like I don't have a deal with anybody. I pay twenty dollars a year to DistroKid, yeah. and I can I can upload as much music as I want, and I keep a hundred percent of the royalties. The thing that dawned on me was when I was looking at r- what you get paid on on like uh, terrestrial radio, right? It's so like say I I had a track. And it was on a on a big major radio station and played at a at a great time, you know. And and it was for like it it, it did one spin and there was like an audience of like eight million people that heard that track, right? And and you what what ends up happening is you end up getting paid around like $250, dollars which is obviously a lot more than half of a penny. However, like you were saying earlier, if eight million people streamed my song, I would make about thirty-two thousand dollars. You know? Yeah. So it's yeah. like it's it would I like to be compensated more? Fuck yeah. But I'm not complaining about it. Yeah. And uh and and I I think the, the problem is is that labels and publishers who by the way are have equity in these companies right. that's the that's, only that's way that's the other thing yeah, that's yeah. so yeah. S- spotify doesn't make a lot of money i mean they barely break even every year as a company yeah. it, but you know the only way they can license all these giant catalogs is by giving equity to the labels so the yeah. labels own the fucking thing and they get paid every quarter for all yeah. the streaming but that's it. Like Spotify hands them the analytics and says this artist made this many plays. They should get this much money. Yeah. And the labels and publishers, they take and they say thank you very much. Right. And nobody holds them accountable. Right. And so the problem is, is like if the rates go up, that means that the labels actually get paid get more, more. And yeah, they can yeah. they can still pay anybody whatever they want. You know, right. you take an artist like You know, Katy Perry and then maybe like Spoon or something, and they could very well be signed to the same publishing company and they could very well have the same amount of streams. Spoon could maybe even have more streams than Katy Perry because we're talking about it's worldwide, right? You know, everybody has access to it. But do you think Spoon's going to make as much money as Katy Perry? You know, it's right, like when right. it comes down to who's paying them, they're like, "Fuck no!" Katy Perry's turning on the, she's keeping the lights on, you know, right, with all her course. deals with makeup companies or whatever. I don't know. You know, I'm not trying to shit talk Katy Perry or whatever. You know,
1: I think for an artist like you, where you know you are staying creative all the time and putting out such an, a consistent m- amount of high quality work, you know, so th- I think that's. It, it's really, you know, you, it's made for someone like you, where it like, is. you know, you are, you can put out music every Friday and you can consistently do that. So it's been inspiring to watch how you do it and also like how you're skilled on on a lot of levels. Not many people I know have that musical ability and are soulful with what they do, but also as technical uh, as you are in terms of like you can make videos, edit your videos, you mix, you master, you do all of these things and you work super, super hard. Um, and as, as as a result, you know you've seen your fan base grow um, on Spotify, social media and all these things. So I, I think you've done a really, just a really great job of of utilizing that um, to your advantage. So I think a lot of artists that I talk to are are pissed off more than anything about Spotify, yeah. and I use oh, you yeah. as an example. I'm like, well, if you're doing what he's doing, it's great. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean, that, that's it's true, you know. And, and I I also have a lot of uh, friends who are musicians that are pissed off about Spotify, and I think there was like this quote from like the CEO of Spotify saying, well, you just got to make more music. And then that everybody got their fucking yeah, hands up in there. And yeah. Th- yeah, they were like, well, if you even knew what it took to make a song. And I'm like, I understand that, but it's like, you can record a track on your phone. And if you're committed to making it sound good, you can make it sound good. Like yeah. it is our job as musicians to, m- to make it work and make recordings like yeah. and to make a track a week. is not that. It's not asking too much if yeah. this is what your job that's is. that's what you do, yeah. And, and you know, my, when my wife and I started having kids, that is what really motivated me. Yeah. I, I yeah. was just like, you know, these guys are dependent on me succeeding. And I'm going to come to this studio and I'm going to work nine to five like like I would if I was clocking in. You know, that yeah. that's a liberty we have as artists is that we don't have to clock in. And that's like the only job that I know where people don't have to clock in. It's yeah. like, and I and I and I used to, when I was just a gigging musician, I would wake up some days and not do shit. You know, I'd watch <laughs> just yeah. like every episode of The Wire, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then be like, all right, go to my two hour gig, get paid a yeah. hundred bucks and feel yeah. good about it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And now I'm just like, I, I want to get as much shit done as possible and then clock out and go hang out with my family. Exactly. And um yeah. there's two artists that like really motivated me, um in in regards to being you know trying to be prolific and put out a lot of content. And one of them is Prince. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you recall like when Prince had those battles with Warner Brothers, it's because they wouldn't release music at the rate that he wanted to put it out. Yeah. And he was constantly in the studio grinding, coming up with new shit and, and he couldn't put it out and they wouldn't put it out. And that's why he painted Slave on his face and shit. Yeah. And then yeah. he changed his name and then and left Warner Brothers and started MPG Music Club. But then the other artist is Dilla. Now Dilla... It's like we are obviously seeing with the years since he's passed how much music that guy made. Yeah. Like he just nonstop. Now I'm reading that book that just came out, yeah, Times. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's like he literally would wake up in the morning. Didn't matter how late he was up. You know, he would get up at seven o'clock in the morning. He would clean his records. He'd dust his gear. He'd start making beats from nine to noon. He'd yeah. t- take a long lunch. He'd come back from three to nine p.m. Yeah. Make more beats. It was yeah. his job, man. It's yeah. like, yeah. And, and that's that's what it is for me. But, you know, if I don't want to go the tr- traditional route and sign with a label, and I'm, it's not out of the question. It's just that I, nobody's ever approached me about it. And so I'm just trying to make it work. So if I, if I want to make it work, I got to do all the things that a label would do for me. And that's making videos, that's posting on social media, that's uploading to distro kit. I mean, it is, it is so much work. And, uh, and, and I, now I'm at the point where I don't have enough time to just sit down and make music, which is really all I want to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's why these live streams have been really a big saving grace for me. It's because it's, it's, it's a, it's a point every week. It's the scheduled time that I know I'm going to make something new that I can then release and the fans can watch it. And, um, and, and, you know, and it's, it, I have this kind of interesting way and this workflow that I've figured out since I've been in the studio with Ableton. And it's fun to show people that it's like, it's almost a performance, but I'm multi-track recording, but I'm just like having, I'm just having fun and I'm not being a perfectionist at all. And, and I think, you know, having these deadlines with these tech companies, you know, providing music for their audio library, it that was a major game changer for me where I would have liberty to work on an album for three years before. But now all of a sudden I have to give them 30 tracks in three months. It's like I'd never worked that fast ever and had to write, record, mix and master and do it all like at the end of like three months i was like holy shit i just made 30 tracks i've never made that much music in my life like i can do this i just don't have to procrastinate or you know yeah yeah. it's like in in the great words of quincy jones there's no no time for paralysis by analysis you know (laughs) i was just like just make it move on like and so it's fun releasing all these songs every week because some of these tracks are like three years old and like i haven't heard him since the day I made him, and I'm like, oh, yeah. that shit was kind of interesting, like right, you know. Right. And I like kind of recall the you know the headspace I was in at the time when I made it, and and I have to like relearn how to play it, you know, if I'm trying to teach it to musicians. And shit. Yeah, like yeah. they're like, what were you playing on that? Um, I have no, no idea. idea what I was playing. Yeah. On that.
1: <laughs> uh, well, it's been an inspiration for me to like watch that whole thing build, and um, and making this record with you is like, you know. One of the greatest things that I've ever been able to do, man. So I really, really appreciate you and appreciate you taking the time to do the podcast. And oh, man, man, we're about we're about to go on the road together. We're about to play some music live. I can't believe it, man. Yeah. yeah and I'm playing bass. <laughs> yeah. So to those of you guys that don't know, Joe's the bassist uh in the touring band, The Assembly, and uh we, uh, shout out to Curtis Kelly, James the Eighth, Will Blades. And uh, we're going on tour with one of my favorite singers and artists, oh. Sun Little. Um, Sun Little. And he's, he's amazing. So uh, all the tour dates are, are up on my site. And why don't you just give us a rundown of where they can find you? It's at Otis McDonald on Instagram. Uh, yep,
2: yeah, yeah. It's Otis. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on um, uh, Twitch, although I never really... Well, I live stream on Twitch now, yeah. yeah, you know, I'm starting to get there. Twitter, I never do shit on Twitter, but you can yeah. follow me if you want. <laughs> and TikTok, I'm
1: on TikTok He's now. He's on TikTok. I'm, all the kids are on I TikTok. Wish I, but... could, I wish I could understand TikTok, I just can't. Yeah, I can't but, figure uh, it out. But yeah, the
2: YouTube channel is the one the I always recommend. YouTube channel great. He yeah. does
1: a live stream every Thursday, am I right? Every Thursday. There'll probably be a bit of a break during the, the tour.
2: Yeah, well, I'm actually going to, I'm trying to archive... Uh, live streams that that uh, my intern can actually um, oh, so he can make you know, it go live. while while we're oh, nice. on stage nice. that can be going live. Nice. You know, I'm I'm hoping I'm trying to get it done, but I got to learn cool. all this damn music. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep, I feel you.
1: Uh, yeah. So our tour starts February 18th, I think, in Fort Collins, and 19th in Denver, and we go all the way around uh, the West Coast, LA's March 4th. Um, then we got the East Coast in in May, so uh, we'll be out there. We'll be man, out there I doing can't, this thing,
2: I can't wait, man. And and you know, we, we've we've talked and sent love letters over our Instagram and shit to each other, but I, I cannot express to you how much it, it has meant to me to work with you, man. And you have like you've really introduced me to, I mean, so many musicians that I've been listening to for like half of my life, including yourself. And it's um, it's been such an honor to like to get to know you as a human, but also just to like to make music with. You know, one of one of my favorite artists, man. Oh man, and, I and, and to, that.
1: to go out on the road with you, I mean, it's a dream, dude. It's it's really cool. I can't wait to to play these the songs live. Um, it's just going to be, man. I'm just I'm getting really really excited about it. Me so too, uh, man. we'll be checking in from the road. We'll be Instagramming and doing all that type of crap. Um, but for now, um, we will bid you adieu, Otis. Joe, you're the man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Krez. All right, brother. All right, bro. Peace. want to thank joe aka otis for being on the show today always a blast talking music with him and hanging Um, we're gonna do it a little bit differently today we're gonna play two tracks we're gonna play one track that otis just put out called el joe um, and you can find that on his own spotify page but i'm also gonna play a track off of the new album we created together always and that one is called hold tight she sure. krasno plus one is hosted by me eric krasno executive producers are rjb and christina collins audio production by matt dwyer produced by myself and ben baruch of Eleven Eleven group all original music is by me and most of which are instrumentals from my album telescope under the artist name kraz this podcast is presented by osiris media if you'd like to get in touch with us email kraz plus one at gmail That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.